What's up, guys? Welcome back to the Quiet Part Loud podcast. This is episode 135. My guest today is Lee Chambers. Lee is an environmental psychologist. He is a functional life coach and a well-being trainer. He started a company called Essentialize after some really serious trials and tribulations hit his personal life and led him down a, a different path to really assist others with optimizing their life. Now, a lot of people that I speak to or look at and explore in this space turn out not to be very genuine. They're just regurgitating old information, you know, motivational posters. They're just spitting them like they, you know, like they made it themselves. But Lee is certainly not that. Um, I had a really interesting conversation with him. We talked about resiliency and mental health. We talked about Black Lives Matter and how to deal with the anxiety of the current crisis and you know how to deal with the anxiety around covid and and keeping yourself at home and you know this changing of what's becoming a new normal um it was a really great conversation i had with lee and uh, as i said i found him to be really genuine and honest and uh, and i think he brings a lot to the table so i hope you guys enjoy the conversation and without further ado please welcome lee chambers shut up and sit down Lee, how you doing? I'm great, Daryl. Thank you for having me on today. My pleasure. My pleasure. As I said, it was good to connect with you, and um, and I thought there were some interesting things uh, that you had to say and some interesting perspectives. Um, so it's uh, it's good to chat with you. It's good to chat with you. Can we um can we start by you kind of telling everybody because you started and you run a company called Essentialize. Yeah. And obviously, so for a good kind of background and and foundation of the conversation, it'd be nice to just tell people what that is. Yeah, so it's a coaching and workplace wellbeing company. And the overarching principle of Essentialize is the idea that a lot of the stuff out there that we do, that we try to manipulate is trivial. And that if we don't really focus on the essential things, including having a real direction and real specific goals about where we're going, making sure that we have our energy optimized, so looking at our movement, our nutrition, our sleep and ensuring that we optimize them for us and not utilize other people's information because we're all individual and we all have our own unique expression of that so we need to find out who we are authentically cut through all society's rubbish that gets thrown at us all other people's opinions to find out who you are find out what your health needs find out what your performance needs and find out what's been holding you back and really start to look to break through that and I've bring that also into business, looking at how businesses also need to do the same thing, get the message there, get the values defined, become purposeful and actually be a business that's changing something. And then let that go down to the employees and let them have the appreciation that they're doing a good job. Give them the space to grow themselves and become leaders in their own right and really build a workplace culture that lets people thrive. And how long has Essentialize been around for? Um, so it's been around for a year, but it was five years in the design and making. And that comes a lot from my own personal qualifications, my own lived experience and the challenges that I've been through. And taking parts from the different industries that I've worked in, finding where best practice was in particularly different areas and effectively fusing them together in an integrated framework. Yeah, and that's what I saw about when I was looking at 
uh, obviously your website and listening to some of the content uh, that you've put out was that it seemed like a holistic approach and bring in kind of all elements of, of life, uh, like a lot of well-being coaches out there and a lot of, you know, quote unquote life coaches out there. They're really just a cheap version of a motivational speaker where they've pulled in other people's ideas and just basically regurgitated them. But I got a little more out of it from you. So it's good to kind of hear that you've got that kind of well-rounded approach. And we'll get into sort of the nutrition and, you know, all of that aspect of things, because I'm really interested in, in how you approach nutrition with overall optimization in the workplace and in your personal life and just on a day-to-day basis. And I live a very, very similar ethos to that. So, um, so, so we'll talk about that a little bit more, but I read that in 2000, was it 2014 that you, you had some pretty serious illness and it actually caused you to lose the ability to walk. Is that right? Yep. So that's, what happened? That's, that's correct. I mean, it was a challenging time. So to kind of just set the scene, at this point, I was running my video game company. Uh, I've met my wife. We've just got married, cruised around the Caribbean. Our son was 18 months old, and she was pregnant with my, our daughter. So, mm. you know, from a society's point of view, things are going quite well. Uh, Everything life, on track? Yeah, everything's on track. Life is kind of bumbling along nicely. And then I've just turned 29. So I was there, like, thinking to myself, like, I've got one year till I'm in my 30s now. What can I go out there and do? What, what do I need to do before I need to be sensible? And my age starts with a free. Um, and then over the course of a week, I went from fully independent, fully mobile, doing, you know, playing team sport, doing whatever I wanted. Uh, and my immune system attacked the connective tissue in my joints, thinking it was an infection. So it hit my wrist first. And I just thought maybe I've banged it or maybe I've just, you know, typed too much stuff up this week. Sure. Uh, and this was over the course of a weekend, so there was no access to uh, no access to doctors at this point. Um, on Sunday, my knee started to lock in place. And then I, I kind of knew then it was a bit serious. So I hobbled to the doctors on Monday morning. They gave me some corticosteroids, said swelling looked pretty bad, but at least you'll bring it down. Um, but then on Tuesday, my shoulder started to rise up towards my ear. And Whoa. then I was, and at that point, I was still, I was still like, he's giving me these, giving me these steroids. Surely it'll be all right. You know, I'm, 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 I'm a young man. Um, in some ways, possibly indestructible and very foolish. Uh, but I woke up on Wednesday morning and my other knee started to swell up. And at that point, I couldn't, I could barely move. So my mother-in-law came around and said, what are you doing? Like A and E now, like she dragged me off to A and E. They took me, took me straight through, to straight through to the ward, and that proceeded to be. I was in hospital for a month, tested for so many different things. They'd realised that my immune system had attacked the connective tissue in my joints, but it attacked my knees so aggressively it pretty much moved my knees about, which really? was which was awful. It was incredibly painful. Uh, and naturally, when I was in hospital at that time, when I got there initially, I was in shock. And when that shock started to wear off, I started to feel frustration and a bit of despair. Like, I've looked after myself. I'm 29, been active, I've eaten well. Like, I've been wiped out. Like, why? And then kind of after that, became it moved into the grief. So, like, you know, I'm a young man. I've got a level of physicality and mobility to me. 
Uh, that's part of my identity. I've suddenly lost that. Like, what am I going to, how am I going to get my competitive edge out there? Like, what am I, I really enjoy the gym in a lot of ways. It's a therapeutic experience. Am I going to be able to get back in there? And all these things started to bubble up and I started to actually feel like, oh, I'm not sure where, I'm not sure where I'm going here. Um, but in that second week, and what happens is when you're flat out with no mobility, you, in so many ways, have a lot of time to reflect because you can't run about busy and do all do all stuff. Uh, it just hit me that I ain't actually ever been grateful for being able to walk, not once in my whole life. That thought had never passed through my head. But lying lying there in hospital bed, having had all these negative emotions, which is important to feel because you've got to let them process and, and go. You bottle them up and they'll give you some level of psychological pain later down the line. Of course. Uh, but kind of getting to that point of accepting, like, this is the current scenario, so this is where I'm at, and it's not going to change. But I'm going to accept and commit to try to work towards my recovery. So that, that grateful moment then spread. I was like, my wife's coming after work, six months pregnant, to come and, like, help me shower. Like, am I grateful? I've not been grateful enough for all these people now helping me. And then it went even further. I'm like, I've grown up in the UK. I've always had food. I've never been homeless. I've had free education. I'm now getting free healthcare. I've had the freedom to set up a business, opportunity to work across numerous different industries. Why should I sit here and feel sorry for myself? I'm going to attack this disease as much as it's attacking me. I'm going to be proactive in my recovery. I'm going to take ownership of my health outcomes. I've suffered and I've been through this difficult period, but now I'm going to not choose not to suffer anymore. I'm going to choose to recover because at that point, your suffering becomes the amount of resistance you give to the pain that you're going through. And if you m- remove that resistance and just accept it, you're not suffering. You get yeah. the chance to then use that suffering to grow. So I was discharged. My daughter was born. And I was there. Like, I'm going to walk by the time she's walking. And that gave me like the, that gave me the why power along with the willpower. I decided I locked into that identity wasn't I wasn't going to do what I felt like because on those mornings when I get up and I was in agony and I was stiff and I was sore I didn't want to do my physio my rehab exercises I didn't want to do them of course. so I decided I'm not going to do what I feel I'm going to do what I want to become what I want to become someone who's back on his feet running around the garden with his children playing so every morning I utilize my actions off my identity instead of how I felt and flipping that around made a massive difference because I did what I needed to do. Everything was based on me getting back on my feet. I optimized my life in as many ways that I could. I adapted a lot of things that I couldn't do so I could do them in some form. And that kind of mindset of it's not what I can't, it's what I can. And actually being you know, resilient because there was, there was a few bumps in the road to get back on my feet as well. I had some issues around my lower lumbar vertebrae starting to compact together because my walking gait wasn't right. And I was right. trying to push it that bit too far. Mm-hmm. Back into physio again to ensure that my gait was correct and supporting me. Um, and in so many ways, that was a really challenging period. But I now look at how much I grew as a man, as a father, as a son, as a husband through all that process. And after 11 months, I was back on my feet, walked a mile and aided. Felt like, if I can do that, what else can I do? And a few weeks later, my daughter started walking as well. And I was just like, in some ways, I was like, 
yes, you know, we can walk together. And then the back of my mind was like, I'll beat her. Probably I knew that was coming. I knew that was coming. Because now she just like asks questions and make, makes me out as a hypocrite. And yeah, <laughs> like, 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 like daughters do. They just yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that's amazing. And so this thing manifested itself over the course of a week. Yeah. And then it Five took days. you almost a year to recover from it. Yeah. Now, you, you said it was attacking you you said it was attacking your 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 mus your the muscles or say say what it was doing to you again. Uh, so it was attacking the connective tissue. Connective in, tissue. In, be- in between the uh, synovial joints. Uh, right. In, so just behind my knees. Yeah. Uh, just behind my wrist and really in, in, in the inner side of my shoulder, just around the back where my shoulder blade was. There's, there's, so what happened is quite often this happens when you have an infection and some of the bacteria debris gets stuck. Sometimes it happens when your body just decides to program itself to attack a certain type of cell. And that's right. what's happened with me. So it's effectively my immune system. It's, it's, un, it's uncorded itself and got confused and decided to attack my body. Like and is there, a, is there a name for this? Like, is there, is there an actual diagnosis for what, what was wrong? Or is this, have they pointed to this either being sort of leftover bacteria or something that just kind of the wires within your immune system got crossed and there was a mixed message sent and it caused this to happen? Is there a name for this? Yeah, so it, it comes under the banner of autoimmune arthritis. Oh, okay. And it's it's obviously an area where understanding is gradually being gained. Sure. Uh, but in the situation where it's that trapped bacteria, after your initial flare up, you then recover. Right. Whereas I've not, it, it's continued to attack me over the years. Because yours um, is an immune-based problem where it's actually confusing the signals that are being sent, which are causing the problem to happen in the first place. Yeah, and what's kind of happened from that is I've then had to take medication that's dampened my immune response. So I've not attacked myself, which is highly unpleasant. And I've been on a journey to ensure that I wanted to reduce that to the lowest possible. On Tuesday, I actually took my last dose because over the oh, last Oh, wow. Congratulations. Year, yeah. So over the last year, I've staged off that medication with the help of my consultant. And that's the result of, you know, three to four years of monitoring my nutrition, monitoring my sleep, monitoring my movement, tracking exactly what energizes me, what I can tolerate, what drains me, what sets off inflammation, what, you know, what, what makes me struggle cognitively and just really anchoring in. And it's absolutely amazing the acuity you get Yes. for this when you focus on it on a regular when basis. You actually- pay attention to the fact that there's so many layers to this and so many pieces to the puzzle that is us that can control mood and, and behavior and, and, and like you said, health and well-being and vitality and, and how, you know, our longevity and all of that. It's, 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 a really, it's a really interesting thing because about six years ago, I was really overweight and I, was, I didn't have anything optimized. I was drinking too much, eating terribly and, you know, all of that living excess and, and I was gaining weight, but I wasn't getting like fat let's say i was getting like here and 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 in in the gut and and that sort of thing but it was it was beating me down you know kind of overall and and what you realize is that like it's the removal of some things you know and paying attention to the minutiae of what's 
actually causing those issues. And along that journey of kind of turning myself into, you know, a healthier version and a more optimized version of myself, it was about doing things like that, paying attention to, you know, what foods aggravate you, what, you know, what patterns of behavior aggravate, you know what I mean? All of these different little like touch points that you have to be so mindful of in order to create what is, I guess, considered optimization in, uh, in its various forms. Yeah, and I mean, it's massive because in so many ways, it's getting that understanding of how things affect you. But it's only really a, a bunch of small changes that you need to make initially. And we're not talking about, you know, all of a sudden completely overhauling your life. You start to do a little bit less of the things that are holding you back and a little bit more of the things that are pushing you forward. And what happens is that compounds in both directions pulling back the negatives over the day to be less, the positives to be more, which starts to put you on an upward spiral and actually compound together like compound interest does. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a momentum builder, right? And, and it's, a snow, it's that snowball effect of, of live a certain way, but do it small incrementally. And it will all of a sudden be, as you said, compounded into a much bigger product at the end of, uh, at the end of that process. It's really, really interesting. And, and, that, that's why I was keen to talk to you because I, I figured that this was kind of the path that we'd be going down because you said it yourself. One of the things that got you through that recovery process was the resiliency, right? And how that played a massive part of, of being able to recover effectively and hitting some of those bumps because we know success is never, you know, a straight line from A to B. It's a roller coaster, right? It's an up and down. It looks oh. like a heartbeat that's on a, on a, on a gradient, right? So it's a, uh, it's things where you're never going to get a smooth path to the finish line. So can you just talk a bit about kind of where your resiliency came from? Like, did you find it in the moment or was it something that was embedded from you from birth? Like, how did you keep yourself going through like that pain that you described and that suffering that you described? Was it the motivation of your family and having their support there? Where, where did that resiliency come from? Yeah, so when I kind of look back and have the self-awareness to try and, you know, like decode it and decipher it a little bit, what I've come to realise is I had the typical, you know, late millennial childhood where my parents ironed out most of the bumps. So I didn't really have to deal with failure and deal with significant challenge until I went to university. I moved out to university and enjoyed the freedom, enjoyed the autonomy for the first six months. But then I started to struggle considerably making that child to adult transition that so many young men have to try and do. And yet I didn't have a great example from my own father who he was, he was always out working to ensure that we had enough, you know, enough money to keep a roof over our heads, which, yes. which, is, which is, you know, it's, it's important but he wasn't actually ever there to show me what it was to be a man and be a father. So I had to try and define that for myself as, you know, a young 18, 19 year old male. But what I started to find is I was struggling with the fact that society told you being a man was a lot of different things. This was back before there was the awareness around masculinity, you know, the forums, the support groups and the help. Um, and as a young man, you're not really taught to communicate. I didn't have the emotional intelligence or the self-awareness to dig deep into myself and find out who I authentically was. And not being able to do that meant that I was looking to society, I was looking to other people, and that wasn't making any sense either. So I was almost stuck in this spiral of not knowing who I was and where I was going. And what I didn't do is start to approach and 
test things. Like, cause in so many ways, if you want to find out who you are, you need to get out there, take action, fail, chisel your own character for Absolutely. all the challenges that you have. And yet when you're not taught to do that, what you actually do is you step back and avoid it all. And you're like, maybe I can think my way to where I am. I'll read my way to where I am. And I then started to struggle with my studies. I choked in front of 300 people doing a business presentation. And mm-hmm. that hit my confidence. And that just led my, me to start to really not look after my self-care in the way that I should. Uh, and I was taking less responsibility for my own behaviours. And I actually ended up isolating myself in my university dorm for two weeks. My wow. parents came and took me home. So it really actually accumulated in me having real mental health struggles. But what that actually did is I went home and realized, well, firstly, looking to society for the answers is not going to give me my answer. I actually need to learn to understand how to go inside myself and bring the real me out. So that kind of started a process of me finding myself worse and realizing that you need to be resilient. You're gonna, I'm going to have challenges like this throughout my whole life. I can't just look at these failures and attach emotion to them and believe that I failed. I need to remove that emotion, look back at why I chalked on that stage and realize I wasn't prepared. It wasn't anything to do with me failing as a person. It was me failing to carry out the process. Yes. Actually, looking back, I then had data. Every time I've spoken publicly since, I've been ready. And it's not happened again. So it's like, it's, it's understanding that actually you need to go through these failures, these challenges, because they shape who you are. And by getting that self-awareness, I was able to go back to university and graduate. Fantastic. And, um, built myself back up and built my confidence and got on a graduate scheme with a national bank here to become a financial advisor, which was great because I love statistics. I love helping people. Put the two together, sounded like the career for me. This was 2007 that I graduated. Right. So I worked really hard at this graduate position. All of a sudden, 2008 comes and they pull me in and say, we can't fund your training. You're going to have to pay for it yourself. And I'm like, don't have that money. Yeah. <laughs> You're not even paying me enough to pay me through this training. Um, but this was obviously in the middle of the economic crash. And I was like, okay, so this is going to have to be uh, something I do myself. I'm going to find a way. A week later, pulled me in and I got made redundant. So I was wow. like, oh, that's the... Uh, I'd started to plan on this journey. I'd spent quite a while thinking about how I was going to navigate that world. And all of, of a sudden, the rug, rug was swept away. But what that actually did after the initial, that's not fair, jeez. That's yeah. Fair. That's a real poor hand to be dealt. Was the, right, okay, so this is actually, what can I take from this? That kind of, again, that proactive mindset. And I was like, right, I'm going to go and do professional qualifications. I pay, I sign up, I do it my responsibility i'm accountable to myself i'm gonna go and set up a business i'm gonna go and do it if the business fails it will be because of what i've done and i can learn from that what i can't actually sit here and do is believe that corporations and organizations are going to look after me pay for me build me a career because they have their own interests their own interests and not me i'm just another person in cogging that machine yeah in so many ways that then made me think right so i've had this challenge let's bounce back and do that and i set up that business and i started doing qualifications around nutrition around football coaching around strength and conditioning and that gave me the tools to physiologically start to work on my own body and start to you know graft the pathway to what would become essentialized 
And essentialized really is, is that combination of my own experiences, that bouncing back, that realizing that failures are just challenges. They're not threats. They actually shape you. They don't take away from you. Yeah. And my own workplace experiences now mean that when I'm in a workplace setting, I use that, that same understanding of how people feel to help empower them, to encourage them, and to help them to you know reach their own potential and see that in line with the organizations. And if it's not, then you start to build yourself up with a consideration that you might move to somewhere that has a better culture fit for you, somewhere that aligns with the things that you want to do, because then you'll have a motive to go to work. So you will be motivated and you will be engaged in your position. But I feel that that resilience for me, it's came from, come from practicing every, cha- every challenge that I've had. It's not something that's, it's not something that was born, so to speak, but everyone has resilience. Many people use it without ever thinking about it. And yet it's like a muscle. You can train it like a bicep to have more capacity to use it, to be able to be bounced back higher, to have more strength in those times, and more fortitude. Really, in so many ways, it's again that link between physiological and psychological. Everything is a muscle that you can train. Absolutely. Absolutely. And similar to a muscle, if you don't, if you don't train it, it will atrophy. And that's where that negative, like we've got momentum and that snowball effect on the positive from practice, but we've also got that from the negative, right? And that's the atrophy of, of not taking a stance of self-awareness and self-reflection and knowing that, you know, maybe, maybe corporate isn't for me. Maybe I need to build the blocks to get myself to a point of independence and to be self-sufficient and self-reliant. But resiliency, like anything, like any skill set, like any muscle, if you're not training it on a regular basis, it will, it will lose its ability to function optimally, right? So a lot of people, in my opinion, don't even know how to do that. Yeah, and it's, it's really it's it's you know some people as you said definitely do it without knowing they have it, but some people don't have it and don't know how to get it. And I suppose that's sort of where you come in with some of the things that you you know you teach and you train and consult on, right? Yeah, certainly. And, and I kind of think that if you kind of look at a lot of what I do around resilience and mindset, like in terms of the nutrition and the sleep, there's a lot out there. And the, there's an element of clarity there. I mean, with nutrition, it's an absolute minefield, if we're honest. But both sleep and nutrition are relatively young sciences in comparison to biology, surgery, and psychology. They've been around for thousands of years. Nutrition, just over 100. Sleep, about 80. So it's like the scientific babies in relative terms. Yeah. Uh, but, but with resilience and mindset, you're looking at the majority of, of the scientific work around them being done in the, in the last 30 years. And we're only starting to really get a grasp of it. But what you kind of find is that with things in the self-help industry, these words have suddenly blown up over the last five years and are being used by lots of different people in lots of different descriptors, in lots of different ways. And not, it's not like meditation or it's not like yoga and it's not like CBT, for example, there's not a defined, defined method. It's not a practice, so to speak. Resilience and mindset are not practices. There's something that you have internally that you can shape, that you can train, 
And really, they're almost like psychological processes. Mm. And I help people to get an understanding of what they actually are from a scientific perspective without going so deep that it doesn't make sense to your average person. But help them understand that, firstly, they do have a scientific process. Secondly, how you take that is quite individual to you. Yes. Because your utilization of it will depend on what you want, on what your journey is, on what missions you want to undertake. And what starting point you're coming from. Exactly. And where you start and where you want to be with your mindset or your resilience then defines your pathway and what actions you will take. And for every person, that's a little bit different. But it's about bringing that back and realizing that actually we need to start to learn to reflect. So many people are so busy that they don't take the time to reflect on A, how they've used resilience in the past to give them the understanding that this is how it's worked for me and this is the outcome. Secondly, how people take many decisions through the lens of their own mindset and how that either takes them closer to where they want to be or further away and helping them to actually utilize the fact that we shouldn't spend our time ruminating in the past because it's happened, it's gone. And yet the past, if we can reflect on it and dissect it a bit, has lots of interesting things that we can take for the future. Yeah. I quite often say that if you actually look at, look at all the oysters out there, it's only the ones that have been attacked by a parasite and irritated and challenged to the point of frustration that have made pearls. So in every little failure that you've had that's really niggled you deeply, there's a little pearl in there if you go back and unpick it and find out, because you find out what not to do in the future, you'll find out a little bit of what might be useful and you'll get a little bit of treasure from every failure that you've had. That's it. And I think it's, you know, I equate it, it's different, but I equate it similarly, right? It's, it's, it's sort, of like, sort of like tech and social media, right? Yeah. You can use it for really, really, really good things. Yeah. Or you can use it for crap. And you can use it for sharing crap and basically having a, what would be the equivalent of a processed food diet mentally, right? And that's yep. really kind of, you know, why I say the application of all of these things is the most important thing. It's not the thing, it's the yep. application of it. So it's not the past, it's dwelling on the past. It's not the past. The past can be useful if you pick out the nuggets that will help you on whatever journey you've got planned for yourself. And if you don't, then your focus needs to be in the future on what you're doing right now, rather than worrying about what has happened. Same with the future. It's okay to have a goal, but you have to work on the incremental processes step by step to get you to that goal, rather than just sitting around and thinking, how do I become a millionaire? How do I become self-sufficient, right? Same thing about, oh, I'm not going to be able to do anything because my dad didn't treat me right, right when I was a kid, right? It's, yeah. it's the application of how you use and how you view those points. In, oh, in yeah. Yeah, and that, that's massive, and it, it works for so many things in life. So the perfect example is technology. If you are the master of technology, you can utilize it for great things, but if you let technology master you, suddenly you're the little rat that's running around after the emails and after everything, trying, and suddenly the balance of control has slipped, and you're not in control. And don't we see that? I mean, don't we see that every yeah. single day? Yeah. I mean, I would go so far as to say that actually our phones aren't an extension of us. We're an extension of our phones now, right? Yep, yep. It's, I mean, it's, and it's the, the dynamic is completely flipped over. 
But it's clever because they've been built with our evolutionary psychological hooks. Of course. Designed to exploit us. And they make money by keeping you on an app. So it's in their interest to code it, design it, and implement it that way. So, and, and again, you have to have that awareness to be able to flip that and decide that you're not going to follow what society says. Because in a lot of ways, society is a little bit sick. <laughs> yeah. And it's actually about stepping back and, and don't, just, don't just, I tell people all the time, don't really take advice. Definitely don't conform. But so much advice out there, like I'm in a position where I'm consulting and coaching. I give very little advice. I give a lot more encouragement than I do advice. Yeah. And that's so important because, again, people read books. That's all good. But then how much do you action? Things only happen through action. At the end of the day, whether it's failure or success, you can't read your way to clarity. Yeah. And that's, that's the biggest lesson that I, I probably bring forth for all my work. There's so many people now have got this idea that, oh, if I just read it, I'll get that knowledge. That knowledge will empower me. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely right. I mean, the perfect example is the secret. <laughs> right? I mean, <laughs> I, I, say, I said this to somebody else on uh, not too long ago, but it's like you only hear from the people that won. Yep. You don't hear from the 45 million or 50 million people that bought that book that are still unemployed, broke, you know, having a terrible relationship because you can't just read a book and be like, okay, cool. That's, that's job done. <laughs> you know, hey. if there's no practical application of process, you go nowhere. Hey, but don't worry, Daryl, because if you put a, a dream board up with all the things that you want, they'll come <laughs> true. You, but you just need to actually rub that up against reality look at the outcomes, actually really want them, and then make a plan. Oh. That's right. Those goals on that board are great. They're yes. great. But the manifestation of reaching those things is a pragmatic process that needs real thought and consideration. And I think that's people, I mean, I mean, we're in such a bite-sized culture now. We're in such a, you know, uh, give it to me now. I, I want to be satiated immediately. And my attention span is only as long as I can, you know, as long as a sneeze these days. Yeah. So it's like, okay, cool. You know, give it to me in, give it to me in a tweet and I'll soak it in and I'll say, whew, I'm all good for today. I've really, I've really got my knowledge today. You know what I mean? I'm good. Um, but so many people don't want to do the work. And that's actually one of the reasons why I started this podcast, because one of the things that's missing is long form conversation about nuanced subjects like mental health, like resiliency, like motivation, like accomplishment and achievement, like digging yourself out of a dark place and finding a better end point to your life. Or as we've, as we've talked about, optimizing your life for health, for nutrition, for mood, for relationships, for employment, all of those things, you know, but unless you have a plan and are prepared to do the work, be prepared not to see any results because they don't, they aren't mutually exclusive. They're the most mutually inclusive thing that you could probably, you know, think about. Um, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about after looking over uh, your Instagram and, and seeing some of the videos that you put out there was your advocacy for nutrition in terms of optimizing your health, because where we are now, you know, we're all locked in. People are in a different sort of routine. They're coming to grips with that during COVID. But one of the things that's come out over 
the course of all of this, I guess, fear mongering and confusion is that health through nutrition and exercise is one of the biggest deterrents for getting sick. Now we know this, but when a new virus comes and starts wiping people out or scaring people to stay indoors and, you know, not touch anybody or talk to anybody, when you don't really have to be that concerned about it if you're, you're, you know, if you're healthy, kind of active individual. So just talk to me a little bit about the importance of, or how you see the importance of nutrition. Because one of the things I heard you talk about was, and some people talk about this, but not a lot, is gut health and how that affects mental health. And I think that's a super important thing that not a lot of people understand. And it, it, it's simplified by saying you are what you eat, right? Yep. In, in, mm-hmm. in essence, talk a little bit about that. Okay. So, I mean, just kind of preface in so many ways you say that, again, humans are not great at preventing things, but we've all of a sudden become very innovative and creative in crisis. So people are not really that bothered about the health because it compounds over such a long period that, if you ate that cream cake now and put on 50 pounds and suddenly had diabetes, you wouldn't eat it. But because it's such a compounded period over time, we just don't see it. We don't take action. But then when something like this comes along, people are like, okay, so, right, actually, I, I need a strong immune system because this could easily kill me. Yeah. And all of a sudden they switch on and like, bang. Um, but yeah, we're only just starting to realize just how powerful our nutrition is. And in so many ways, we do understand that to be healthy, we actually need to fuel ourselves with what we truly need. And that is all individual. But as we start to realize just how much of our nervous system is in our gut, so 90% of our serotonin receptors are in our gut, which means what you eat directly affects your mood. It literally goes up through your vagus nerve and plays a massive part in how you feel day to day. And it's not just that, it's the way it spikes your blood sugars and your insulin sensitivity changes. And that affects how you feel. So, so much of how you eat affects what you feel. But also, 80% of our immune system is in our gut as well. So you start to actually realize that these things, are, they're, not, they're not just interlinked. They are literally inseparable. Yes. Why so much now in terms of inflammation, in terms of infection, is really, in some ways, gut-related. And what you feed yourself, would you put crude oil in an electric car? You need to be fueling yourself for what you need. You don't want diesel and petrol. You don't want, you know, and really, you want your body to be like a V12. You don't want to be riding around like you're a lawnmower engine with no energy. Exactly. And and, and it's simple base. We're just one big ball of energy navigating our way around the planet. That's, That's it. made of energy. So it's, it's, if, if, we, if, we go, if, we, if we blow out the micro, go macro and go massive, it's like we're just energy. And, and we, we need to look at nutrition in a lot of different ways. So firstly, you kind of look out there in the world and nutrition has become a belief system. And because the science is so young, you could say that this way works or this way works and have the studies to back it up because we're incredibly resilient when it comes to what we eat. 
Otherwise, people who ate fast food all the time, they'd just drop dead. <laughs> Boom. Um, so we are incredibly resilient and we are incredibly, you know, adaptive. If we kind of look at the diets, traditional diets, so the Maasai in Africa, who eat mostly protein, uh, animal meat and blood, the Inuits who eat mostly animal fats from the sea, and the traditional Mexicans who eat mostly carbohydrates from uh, traditional corn. Corn, yeah. Yeah, and, and maize and there are three completely different diets. You look at the, you know, the macronutrient design of those diets, and they're all massively skewed in one direction. And yet, there's no traditional disease. There's no, you know, conventional modern disease in any of those, any of those tribes. And it's crazy. And you start to see that actually, you can live with your microbiome that's been created over years through your tribe breeding together and be able to eat vastly different diets but suffer from very little inflammation and very little chronic disease that's you know rife across the western world which just shows that everyone has to go and find their own nutrition so following that meal plan from somebody else that's that's not for you and in so many ways we try to wonder why diets work in principle but then don't work long term again firstly it's not for you secondly most diets just increase fiber and that has the cumulative effect of decreasing calories and then you lose some weight in the short term anyway but it's very rarely sustainable 100 percent unsustainable in my opinion yeah and, and it's like in so many ways those belief systems pull people about belief systems are useful because they make people consistent because they ingrained into their identity so much that they restrict food groups so much that they end up barely eating anything. <laughs> yeah. And, it, and it's like, but that's no way to live. In the same way as human beings, we've got a full range of emotions from the saddest to the happiest. We've also got a full range of food that we should be able to, at some point, at least eat a little bit. And the problem is with dietary guidelines saying, oh, all this, everything in moderation, blah, blah, blah. It's, it's been designed and shaped over the years by a lot of different influences. And in big food, there's a hell of a lot of influence. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely. I remember I remember seeing something about uh what was it? Um it was a it was a scientific study that said sugar's not that bad for you. And it was it was backed by a bunch of scientists, but then it was actually funded by obviously the uh you know, the um the, the sugar companies. And they had yeah. paid these scientists to deliver results that then changed us away from how we eat fats and gave fats in you know a bad name and sugar and carbs aren't the problem and you know it's all it's all self-interest there's always another level of of kind of you know mechanics working in the background to deliver some of these things and i think that's why what you said is super important is <clears throat> what you eat's not going to work for me necessarily and you have to try you know but also you get cultish with these tribes of you know, nutrition types, right? It's I'm a keto or I'm a vegan or, you know, whatever it is. I'm on carnivore now. And, 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 and I can't tell you that it doesn't work because that would mean admitting I'm wrong and that I'd be kicked out of this group or I couldn't associate with that group anymore. And, you know, people are so embedded in confirmation bias and these echo chambers of, you know, any part of society. And nutrition is just another one of those. Yeah. And it's really just about what works for you because during my weight loss pro, I, I tried all kinds of different things, but it was just about what I found was not stressing so much, 
mm-hmm. was a massive contributing factor in me not being inflamed and feeling terrible and underperforming. And I could actually eat more of what I thought I couldn't eat if I just didn't worry about it so much. And I kept more of a balanced lifestyle. Yeah. And what it kind of is, is those, those belief systems, they do create consistency, but they actually create stress because yeah. you're constantly having to monitor to make sure you're conforming to the rules. So what you actually need is not a belief system, you know, that's been set by someone else. You need your own nutritional belief system. So you, it only passes through your lens. You don't stress about it because you design your life in that way. And it's designed not for something that you, you want to do that anchors into all the other people because they'll probably move to another diet in five years. There's a whole group of people who constantly switch from this one to this one because it's trendy. All they want to do is sell a book or yep. become an influencer or, you know, it's short-term gain that's got their own self-interest rather than the interest of others. And why wouldn't you do the same thing rather than paying attention to that? Let, let's just say it's like politics. Every five years, there's a, there's a new party, <laughs> a new direction. new. And to be honest, sometimes I think nutrition is worse than politics. You go into that group and you say something that doesn't conform with what they believe, and holy hell, you will know about it. You're oh yeah, <laughs> and 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 don't try to fight. Don't try to fight a vegan on uh, on nutritional benefits of that diet, or you will be attacked by an angry mob. It's uh, <laughs> it, it's a, it's a scary old place on the world of not being a vegan. You know what I mean? <laughs> trying to trying to tell them that, that might not be the best for everybody, but uh, yeah, that's uh, that's. That, that's that confirmation bias again. And, and people would rather be, I, I feel almost led rather than, you know, rather than just be on a self-reliant journey on their own. You know, oh, they, yeah. they, they need that stuff to, to kind of fuel them. But like you said, that creates stress and then probably has a counterproductive outcome at the end of the day. Yeah, we all know that cortisol then, then ends up driving some of our decisions and causes yeah. us to feel a certain way. But again, if you, it's easier. The reason why is people want a shortcut. They want a simple system. They want someone to give it to them because it's, it's easier for someone to give you that system than it is to do the work to find out what works for you. 100%. And it's that, again, it's society's short-term bias. It's society's, I want it simplified. I want it diluted. I want it in, you know, a five-step program. And all the people who step back and say, no, I want to explore it for myself. I want to create it myself. And if you create your own nutritional belief, then you've got that for life. It's not changing the trends. And you can actually then objectively look at the science because you can't really go and go into the world of nutritional science now in a lot of ways, because it's just, it's just, it's too much of a minefield. It is a minefield. It is a minefield. And it's based on, it's based on a lot of dogma. And, uh, and, and it's based on, on, I think, almost like fashionable culture rather than actual science and evidence, which is obviously not helpful for anybody. No, and it's almost to the point where you actually just look back and think, what did people eat 200 years ago? Yeah. Before stuff started appearing in boxes before stuff had more than more more than five ingredients because yeah that's one of the things i actually heard on uh one of your videos uh was how you talked about food labeling and you know the fact that you know the closer you go to red the last the less it actually food 
and you probably yeah. want to stay in that green and maybe just dip into that yellow a little bit. But if it's red, that probably means it's barely even food as we would build food, right? <laughs> yeah. And, it, and it's like you kind of know that there's, there's, there isn't really anything that exists that's like actually full of fat, full of carbs. Out, no. out, out in the world, the closest thing is nuts. And even then, they're like, they're, they're good in small amounts. And yeah. They're, they're one of one of nature's interesting uh, fruits, but yeah, no, no. The, the, imagine if there was trees with cookies on. <laughs> <laughs> or chorizo packets, right? Packets of chorizo and salami hanging off the trees. <laughs> yeah, it's it's ridiculous. Um, listen, I want to switch. I want to pivot a little bit because um, obviously, you know, we're living in some very unusual times, right? And anxiety is high. Financial pressure, financial security, it's all causing sort of an undue amount of pressure. You know, people are working from home, they're not used to it. People are uncertain about their jobs. That's, un you know, it's unusual for a lot of people. The households obviously are a consequence of this and this is trickling down into families and and so on um we see you know mental health is you know suffering domestic abuse is on the rise alcoholism is on the rise you know all of these things people are dealing with their anxieties in a lot of different ways but what would what would you encourage people to do to kind of manage some of that anxiety do you have any sort of advice or guidance that you would say to the to the folks listening that you know again maybe it's just take a step back be more self-reflective but what should they help themselves like what should they do to help themselves manage some of those feelings yeah so i mean it's challenging and it's so true though at the minute that underlying anxiety in the bigger picture there's something out there that as a shared human race is bigger than us it can it can very easily wipe you out uh so yeah everyone is having that shared experience so the first thing actually is to just have a minute to think it's not just me everyone else feels like this and just that simple idea just helps you to just realize that it's not just your problem it's everyone's problem and then it's starting to look at what you can actually do because that problem is there for us all. And it's going to sit there in the background and gradually, you know, cause an element of stress within us. So this is where being proactive comes in. So the first thing to do is make sure that you're communicating with the people around you. And that level of communication is more important than ever. That social connection to the people that you're meeting be intentional, have those conversations and start to show that empathy and compassion for the people around you in your life. Just realize that this is a time for us to actually slow down a little bit and have those more deeper intention conversations. And then it comes down to your own self-care. So ensuring that you're finding ways to bolster your well-being through this process, you need to be getting some form of exercise to get that blood flowing through those cognitive parts of your brain, it just refreshes you. If you can get outside, do it. The power of having the sunlight shining into your eyes, the wind blowing your face, your feet grounded on the floor, hearing the birds or the sounds around and 
when suddenly all your senses are switched on and you're just there in the moment, the anxiety is not there. Doing mindful activities like gardening, like drawing, like being creative, you know, there's lots of hobbies that people have that now you have a chance to reattach to them. And when you're there, like even if you're washing up the dishes, as you move that sponge around the dish, it's mindful. Mm. There in the moment, washing, concentrating. And it's important because it's quite easy to sit there and continually reflect and regurgitate this, these feelings. And yet it's about being proactive. You can meditate and start to learn how to switch on and off a bit easier over time and just start to do things which give you that impetus to realize that the future is bright but we have to actually get through this period together as a race. And again, eat well. It's going to affect your mood. It's going to affect how much brain fog you have. Make sure you sleep. Sleep is quite difficult with this underlying level of anxiety, and lots of people are struggling. And yet you've got to try and ensure that your sleep environment is really well, really good, well optimized for you, the temperature, the darkness, making sure that your room is a sanctuary, that your bedding is comfortable and supports yep. you all night. And that you have a routine in the evening. Because again, so many of us have lost our socially defined wake-up time. We've lost the structure of schooling, the structure of working. So we need to actually build that structure back into our lives and make routines, especially in the morning and evening, to anchor us back into who we are. And I think one of the biggest things I say is so many people wake up and the first thing they do is look at the phone. Or the first thing that actually happens to them is they're woken up by an alarm. Now, an alarm is an intrusion on your privacy. The first thing that happens in your day, and if you actually look at the meaning of the word alarm, you know, fire alarm, panic alarm, never a good word. It's yeah, a negative exactly. word. It doesn't have a good association, does it? It doesn't have a good association at all. So it's actually about making sure that you don't just dive into other people's worlds as soon as you wake up. You look at the news, you look at social media, you check your emails, because they're probably going to put you straight into someone else's anxious negative filled world Definitely. wake up and go into your world explore yourself reflect have some silence pray just be present with you and if you're able to almost get into your brain a little bit get those anxieties write them down just getting them from your brain onto a piece of paper allows you to become more objective allows you to suddenly realize actually this isn't just me this is something bigger. This yeah. is something we're all going through. And again, like that heartbeat, at the moment for many people, they're right at the bottom of the ECG. And yet, if you believe and have the resilience through this period, you'll bounce right back up when things go up again. Absolutely. And that's life. And that kind of acceptance and commitment that you're going to do the best you can in difficult times will mean that you actually feel less anxious less depressed and you'll keep taking action every day to get you where you want to be and suddenly you're bigger than the problem that's floating around that's right and we talk about again that positive snowball effect based on the right actions especially during a crisis or times of you know high anxiety and, and high pressure and high uncertainty it's even more important to anchor yourself in something that is holistic and something that is manageable and something that is you know um, 
attainable, but also something that you can adhere to. Because if you're not doing anything, if you're doing, you know, I'm, I do personal training outside of my, my normal job. And one of the main things I tell people that I train is, you know, you might want to do this, but you might not like it. So we need to find something that you're going to be able to adhere to. And, it, you know, it's going to be difficult. So I wouldn't call it fun but it's going to be something that you enjoy more than you enjoy doing that thing. And the likelihood is the likelihood of your adherence to that will be factors higher than if I just make you do something that I want you to do. So it's about you finding those anchor points in your day, like you said, in the morning and the evening that are right for you. Don't let somebody else tell you what you should be doing in the morning, but find something that's good for you in the morning. Find how you like to go to bed in the evening. What works for you? Like you said, optimize your own space, your own thoughts and your own habits and things that you do kind of put as pillars in your day to create some sort of consistency that helps you manage through. And once you do that and you consistently do that, as you said, then the problems that we're all facing seem like they're in a much more manageable package. It's really, really important stuff. Yeah, and it's like it's comp you're able to almost compartmentalize these things. Yes, just, definitely. Just, in, in, in so many ways, it's just the essence of what we both speak is find what you enjoy. You only find that by doing things. You quite often find out what you enjoy by finding out what you don't. Yeah. <laughs> It's so true, right? How do how do endeavors like people starting podcasts or people starting, you know, help, you know, self-help businesses and coaching businesses, right? They f we, we, we find these paths by doing stuff that we don't actually like doing. So we try to carve out our own path somewhere else. That's yeah. really what it's all about. That's it's it's such a valuable point. I hope I hope people get hope, hope people listen to this and and see the value in, in what's being said because it truly is important. And I think one of those things of you know, staying off of social media, especially first thing and last thing in the evening is so critical to how you set yourself up for the day because those platforms don't help. They're, they're cesspools, you know, they're cesspools and they're so unrealistic and they're so antisocial that they don't have any benefit in terms of health and well-being and mindfulness. So, you know, I think, I think it's a really, really valid point. Oh, yeah. And I think just one thing to leave you with, Daryl, is the, the mobile phone companies did some research into people's sleep and performance when they used the phone first thing in the morning and last thing before they went to bed. They paid for this research, which found yeah. that people took longer to get to sleep, had poorer quality sleep, and were less productive the next day. And they, are willing to, they were willing to fund and publish that research because they're so confident that you'll still do it. 100%. I mean, it's, it, it, I mean, it is the biggest addiction that the human race has ever faced, you know, is technology and social media. And it is, it is making us addicts at a rate that we can't even calculate and people have no idea what the ultimate consequences of it are going to be. I mean, Matthew Walker, you know, the sleep doctor, he, yeah. he speaks about an alarm and how unnatural it is to have your, you know, your, your privacy invaded or your sleep invaded because of, of an alarm that's determined that you have to get upset probably by somebody else, you know, and that that's not doing anything for your mindfulness. And actually, it's actually taking away from your life and your longevity and your performance while you have that life. And it's really, really important stuff. Um, the last thing I wanted to ask you about, mate, and then I'm going to let you go, is um, because another thing that's obviously creeping into the news and, and causing a lot of anxiety is the Black Lives Matter protests. 
and again falling into these echo chambers and and which side you fall on and you know and and how can i speak about it if i don't agree wholeheartedly with you know the protesters who are looting and rioting but i i care about the cause and 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 you know all of that but it's just like i can't speak out in a work environment now because i'm i'm dancing on eggshells and you know i feel alienated even you know by not saying anything I'm now part of the problem and, and that's creating anxiety as well. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on because it's current, because it's happening, because it seems like a watershed moment in some respects, if it's handled correctly, I want to get your thoughts on, on, on the movement itself and what you think it's doing to people and, 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 and any, any thoughts you had on the situation at all. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely, it's such a challenging and emotive subject. And in some ways, it's it's about communication at the moment just understanding that for some people it's bringing up a lot of trauma from the past depending on individuals people's experiences so that sensitivity in how we deal with it is really important the the, the way to communicate it there, there needs to be a realization that it's not a case of you know black lives matter directly so to speak because every black person is different like every human being is different but we're all human beings <laughs> so it's such, such a challenging direct but you can't say all lives matter now no and it just shows how people can polarize certain words to then and almost hijack them and move them in a certain direction definitely and, uh, it's it, it's sad that it's come to that however I ask people to take their own individual self-awareness and work on that. If you're coming from the heart, then even if you struggle delivering it, people will understand that it's actually come from a place of love, from a place of compassion. And being able to articulate and understand that there's certain constructs in society which have made it difficult for people and as things have become more diverse in recent years, things have not always become more inclusive. Yes. And therefore, at the, at the, in, the, in, the, in the higher levels of society, there's still prevailing attitudes that are in some ways more traditional, more conservative, and haven't moved with the way we have moved as an inclusive society going forward. And starting to actually see that and understand that, the, the people who've now come forward, stepped forward and said that they have more appreciation for what's not there, because no one's educated on this. No. No one's really given, people are given some education around history, but not really educated on what psychologically happens when a particular race is, grows up in a certain belief system. Subjugated, basically, to a degree yeah. for years and decades and longer. Yeah, and we've got to think, like out in South Africa, apartheid was only abolished. It's less than 50 years ago. My so, wife is from Cape Town. Yeah, and, and the, the amazing reality about that is that just shows just how still modern an issue it's been. People tend to, people tend to think that we've evolved amazingly over the past you know, 30, 35 years, and technology's come an awful long way. We, physiologically, have not changed. We're apes. We're apes with great tech. Yeah, apes with great tech, and it and it and it's like it, in in terms of the movement, it's important that 
you don't look at the movement. It's important that you look at yourself, your own relationships with the people around you. Start to become aware and see if there's any bias in your the way you act, which is not necessarily your fault. It's important to realise we can't go blaming people for the biases that they have. That's from their lived experience. Yeah. You can't say to people that it's your fault that you're not self-aware. You need to empower them to become more self-aware so they understand how their actions, how the lens they see through affects their decisions. And if you blame people, if you shame people, it actually takes away the responsibility. They become less responsible for what they do. They go and find that confirmation bias elsewhere. Absolutely. Which is why it's so vital that we look to we look to engage, empower, and educate, but not in a way that is saying you must do this. Yes. Because and also must- not cutting people down by accidentally saying the wrong thing. Because, like you said, as long as it comes from a genuine place of interest or you know, love and, and, and community, then a certain level of forgiveness has to be extended. Because again, as you're saying, the self-awareness is coming from a generational point of view rather than necessarily, you know, it's like, uh, yeah, they say people aren't born racist, right? They're raised yeah. racist, right? Nobody, nobody's born hating somebody because of the melanin in their skin, right? That's a ridiculous concept. But these learned behaviors are manifested over generations, and that's what causes us a lack of self-awareness in what we're currently seeing with some folks, you know. But people also need the platforms and the environments where they can speak, maybe even ignorantly, in some, in some, you know. We, obviously, we don't want you know overt racism or any you know anything demonstrative. But people have to be able to make mistakes, and they have to be comfortable saying, "I don't know, I'm not sure." this isn't like a yes or no situation. You know, I look at some of the, look at some of the police interactions and, you know, one of the things that's being talked about now is defunding the police. And I can't think of anything more ridiculous than not having, you know, a police force that's, that's on the street. My, my, my personal thoughts are that we should be actually funding the police better because we should be putting that money into training capacity and mental health training and, you know, support for these people who are in potentially the most stressful job around. And on the flip side of that, I think there needs to also be an awareness and an education piece done on people, regular folks on how to interact with law enforcement. Because you thinking that you can have an attitude with someone else like you would with a, or with a police officer like you would with somebody else is going to cause a lot of these disastrous outcomes, right or wrong. And what we've seen over the past 20 days since George Floyd went and got murdered by a police officer is that there's been over a hundred people that have died in exactly the same way. That's a fault of both sides, in my opinion. And I think we need to uh, we need to allow environments where you can have that discussion in a nuanced way, because as long as it's coming out of a, I think a want and a desire to learn, that can't be a bad thing. No, and it, it's 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 about time those conversations were had, and we all kind of know that it's difficult for people in, in the UK to truly get a grasp of that because we are fed international news that the international news media wants to feed us 
And again, when we actually look at what's happening here, what gets reported here is what get is quite different to what's reported about the UK to the rest of the world. Yes. And where we consume our news sources from starts to bleed into what we believe. We start to actually, you know, favor a certain source of news because it, it starts to fit our bias. This is echo chamber thinking again. Yeah. And in so many ways, what actually needs to happen is, like you said, there needs to be a place where these difficult conversations can be had. They're not easy. These are not easy conversations to be had. And that's that's one of the biggest things to actually come from it, that there's no easy, easy, nice, simple solution. Like everything we've been saying in this episode, there is no simple, there is no easy five-step plan to eradicate racism. Yes. It's that simple. Absolutely. It's a very deep, complex issue. And yet there needs to become a point where we can facilitate this agenda. It needs to be spoken about. Because if it's That's not, we get nowhere. No, it's just going to bottle up and become worse, like releasing that negative emotion. Absolutely. And, and now it's ended up where people are doing things that would effectively, that are effectively breaking the law to emphasize a point. And you know that when people go to those lengths, that there's a conversation that needs to be had. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, listen, this has been really, really fun. This, is, this has been really, really insightful, Lee. I re- I, um, I, again, I'm just really glad to connect with you. Um, I didn't know how the conversation was going to go, but like I said, I didn't really want to, I didn't really want to structure it in any, you know, certain way because the best is just to have a conversation, I think. And, and that's always, you know, that goes towards the point we were just saying, I'd love this to be a forum where, you know, these difficult conversations can be had without fear of, you know, alienation or consequence. But this conversation has been really, really helpful. And I think really, really valuable for, for the folks that are going to listen. And I hope they take, you know, a lot of the information away and give it some, some actual consideration. Um, for people who might want to get in touch with you or explore more about Essentialize and you as a person and kind of your background and, you know, again, just get in touch if they, uh, if they feel they need a little bit of help pointing them in the right direction. Do you want to let people know where they can, where they can find you and how they can reach you, Lee? Yeah, the best places are on leechambers.org, essentialize.co.uk, and on Instagram at essentializecoach. And essentialize is E-S-S-E-N-T-I-A-L-I-S-E, yeah? Yep. Fantastic. Well, listen, again, a real pleasure, and, uh, and I appreciate your time, and, and I hope we can do it again, because I think there's plenty that we can talk about, and, uh, and you know, the things that you're dealing with are, are not fad issues, right? They're always going to be relevant and, uh, and pertinent to discuss, so you're welcome back anytime, mate, and I really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm always good for a quiet part too. <laughs> nice. Well, listen, I will. Uh, I'll speak to you real soon, and, and thanks again for coming on. 